Right, uh, good evening everybody. Welcome to the LSE and welcome to this, the first of this year's series of three annual lectures. Um, we've got a notional title uh, over all three of them of sovereignty and identity, but our speakers are welcome to uh, make rather free use of that title and go their own way. Um, I do, I had wanted to um, bring in to our discussions somebody whose work was coming at a, a rather different angle from many we've had on questions of identity, of our own identity and cultural identities, um, from a view which wasn't sort of at the heart of a sort of mainstream European thinking about itself. Uh, one of the questions that I'm exploring at the moment is whether Europe knows what it is. I mean, I suppose we're in a time when it's pretty clear that it hasn't got a clue <laughs> what it is. Um, but, but there's a sort of European self-understanding which has certainly been dominant, even if it is rather fragile, uh, that Freud himself actually has an interesting relationship to. Um, from the Enlightenment, we're encouraged to think of the times of science, what's what Freud called the times of science, as a development in which Europe was becoming increasingly emancipated from mythology, from illusion, from superstition, and so on. And that science was uh, at the deepest expression, as it were, of European greatness and of its being at the head of the pack in a, in, in a, of a global history. Freud himself offered a, often, actually, a sort of counter-narrative inside the times of science, which, far from confirming that self-understanding, chipped away at it through what in English are called blows. They weren't just any old kind of blows. In the German, they're blows to uh, what Freud says in German, I, humanity's Eigenliebe. And in Strachey's English translation, this gets translated fairly straightforwardly as humanity's self-love. Um, I don't know if that's a nice Bloomsbury way of translating it, Eigenliebe. It almost sounds it to me. <laughs> uh, the French translation, however, is um, Amour Propre, which already has a whole package of Rousseau inside of it, which is quite interesting. So Freud going into French becomes a sort of Rousseauist drama, and into English perhaps a rather Bloomsbury one. And then recently, uh, translating it rather freely for himself in the 1990s, Jacques Derrida translated it as narcissism. So he, as it were, put a bit of Freud, instead of Rousseau into Freud, he put a bit of Freud into Freud. But uh, in this case, rather exceptionally, Freud didn't talk about human narcissism. He spoke of self-love. And so uh, from, from my first uh, sort of um, arrival at that little story that Freud told about this, uh, these blows to human self-love in the times of science, which were, in fact, blows from Copernicus, who said, look, you're not a special planet, you're just a planet amongst planets. A blow from Darwin, who said, you're not even a special animal, you're just an animal amongst animals and you have an animal descent. And then 
rather grandly in a discourse on self-love, the third one was Freud himself, saying that uh, the third great blow to our narcissism was the discovery of the unconscious, which suggests that we're not even, as he puts it, master in our own house, and that most of our behaviour is uh, driven by unconscious motives and unconscious drives. But it is an amazing story which, far, which tells another way of thinking about Europe's history and trajectory. And as I said, I wanted to open the space for uh, thinking beyond a rather traditional way of thinking about who we are, not necessarily only as Europeans, but the opportunities involved, particularly in inviting Robert Young here today. Robert's the Julius Silver Professor of English and Comparative Literature at New York University and really is world-renowned for his great writings on post-colonialism, on colonial desire and post-colonial criticism. Uh, and uh, I discovered today, I'm afraid I didn't know this, and on English ethnicity, which is my, I look forward to seeing this. There's also, for those of you who are, who are dipping into these sorts of things, he, he wrote the uh, OUP very short introduction to post-colonialism as well. But he's also, <laughs> as well as having written on colonial and post-colonial theory, a uh, number of essays on psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic criticism in literature. And uh, I thought he'd just be the most wonderful person to set us off this year on the series of annual lectures around whatever it's going to be about. So, Robert, thank you very much. Well, thanks very much, <coughs> Simon. Um, actually, it's going to be about uh, <laughs> what I said it's going to be about, uh, which is Freud and translation. Uh, and <coughs> I, I came to that interest because I've been working a lot uh, in the last few years on, on translation, in fact, translation theory, uh, from, in, in part, a kind of post-colonial uh, perspective. Um, and trying to think through ideas about cultural translation and and what what kind of theoretical paradigm we could we could uh, conceive of for for such an idea, uh, and then also I started thinking about uh, though it's actually as a, as a as a term it's quite a a, a recent uh, phrase thinking about whether there've been people who who'd effectively been writing about cultural translation. Uh, as it were, without knowing it, um, in a Freudian sense, um, uh, but <coughs> using slightly different terms and so forth, but, but trying to get a handle on what we would now think of as, as being cultural translation. Uh, and uh, I've, I've been trying to, as it were, develop encounters with, with such people. Uh, another one would be Franz Fanon, uh, who, in fact, as far as I know, never talks about translation as such, but um, nevertheless, I've argued his writing actually if, is, all, is all about effecting uh, self-translation in, in particular, not narcissistically, um, but in a political sense. Um, so, and uh, with a long-standing interest in Freud, who I've been writing about off and on for, for quite a while now, um, uh, I was teaching a course on Freud uh, th uh, this past semester, in fact, at NYU. Uh, and uh, I, was, I was aware, in fact, that, that Freud uh, himself does talk about translation quite a lot. He does use the word, unlike Fanon. Um, <coughs> and 
I was quite surprised by the, the fact that uh, there was relatively little writing about Freud and, and translation, uh, so I thought I would uh, have a go and, and see what I could find. Um, obviously, the, the way in which people mostly talk about Freud and translation, um, uh, and the vast bulk, if you look at, if you look at ideas of, of Freud and translation, uh, <coughs> is about uh, uh, the translation of Freud. Uh, that's that's the predominant topic of translation, <coughs> Freud and translation. Um, <coughs> but uh, <coughs> uh, how does Freud himself translate uh, or deploy translation as a concept and a practice? That's that's what uh, I'm, I'm interested in. Um, obviously, as you know, there have been uh, uh, a lot now of, of uh, discussions of the somewhat formalising um, translations by Stretch in the standard edition. Uh, pioneered by Bruno Bettelheim um, and has actually produced now the retranslation of, of Freud in the new Penguin Freud edited by Alan Phillips, where Freud's German appears in a, in a slightly different register, more conversational and um, idiomatic. Um, and uh, some of the translators of that edition spent a lot of time detailing the sort of luckless Strachey's faults, um, in, uh, as it were, word by word. Um, but uh, there's still, I think, a certain kind of majesty to, to his translation, which uh, I'm quite fond of. Uh, <coughs> and one of the things you, you realize looking at different translations, and Fanon is exactly the same, is that actually a more accurate translation is not necessarily a better translation. Um, but that's a, another story. Um, what's interesting about those debates, anyway, is that they generally uh, don't mention two things, really. One is that Freud himself was a translator. He actually translated, uh, I think, five books. Uh, including books by J.S. Mill, Schuckel, Berman, and others. Um, and he translated actually on, on uh, relatively relaxed principles, um, certainly not ones that would get through the, the, um, <coughs> the, the, the grid of uh, the Penguin Freud translators, um, where he, he was really blithely oblivious, you could say, to the principle of fidelity. Um, uh, and he, he tried to make his own translations uh, in some sense, represent the original text in the German idiom. So, so he was, uh, if, you, if you like, a domesticating translator in, in Venuti's terms. Um, uh, but this evening, as I've suggested, I want to, to, to think about uh, something else, which is um, <coughs> uh, Freud himself as a theorist of, of translator, translation. And he quite often discusses uh, questions of linguistic translation that, that come into many of his accounts of different uh, psychic phenomena. Uh, for example, hysteria, his explanations of the dream work, everyday parapraxies, jokes, the uncanny. Translation is always coming in uh, at some level in, in Freud. Uh, and the first effect that that has, I think, is that he, he, he emphasizes the degree to which we or our psyches <coughs> um, occupy a, or inhabit a kind of translational space, suggesting, in fact, that the psyche is operates in a multilingual way; that it's not it's not monolingual, um, uh, and it's alert to the constant possibility of using translation as a mechanism of displacement, in particular, in the in the face of oppression. And this, of course, is something uh, <coughs> that, as Freud would say, um, is 
evident in everyday social practice, um, <laughs> particularly in the, the use of polite euphemisms in another language, where direct expression would be embarrassing, such as the phrase uh, that we uh, still use, ménage à toi, for example, or derrière, uh, people still, still people who are saying that, or as Freud himself puts it in a paradoxical but suggestive uh, expression in his discussion of Dora, j'appelle un chat un chat. <laughs> which he puts in French. Um, and what, so what he shows is that uh, uh, this uh, linguistic displacement through languages is a fundamental part of our psychical apparatus, not something that in fact is just the specialised activity of, of experts, of translators, but that translation itself could be thought of as less as a form of carrying across, as it uh, literally uh, means in, in English, than as a form of displacement, of dislocation, of de derangement, of a kind of uh, practice of diasporas of, of languages, you might, you might say. But rather than uh, pursue that somewhat uh, increasingly, as I speak, Derridean route, um, <clears throat> I want to look at instead uh, at his, his use of translation as a metaphor uh, or as an analogy. Of course, metaphor means exactly the same thing uh, <coughs> etymologically in, as translation, except one is Latin, one is Greek. Um, <coughs> so uh, they obviously have a close relation to each other. Because the, uh, Freud says that the practice, the pra actual practice of, of psychoanalysis is itself <coughs> uh, a form of translation. Uh, <coughs> and here uh, Arguably, the later theory of the transference uh, extends that uh, even further. But, but in a different way, and more radically, I think, he describes psychic life itself as a process of translation that operates in a dialectical relationship with what he calls cultural transformation. And I want to suggest, uh, <coughs> picking up this term, cultural transformation, that this, this amounts to quite a, a radical theory of what we might now call cultural translation <coughs> that has relevance not only to translation theories, but uh, some uh, <coughs> issues of cultural translation today. Patrick Mahoney, who along with uh, fellow analyst Jean Laplanche, is one of the, the few who have explored the question of translation uh, in Freud in, in detail, argues that Freud should be seen as, uh, quote, one of the great thinkers and innovators in the domain of translation. At one level uh, that he's right, but actually it, uh, Freud has generally not been seen in that way. If you go to the realm of translation studies, uh, uh, that is not generally speaking how, uh, how he's credited, shall we say. <clears throat> what he performs, I think, is rather in some sense a translation of translation theory, or um, perhaps more accurately, but um, still working within the range of meanings of the word Übersetzung uh, in German, which means not only translate, of course, but literally to set above uh, or to transpose. Uh, uh, what Freud effects is a kind of transposition of, of translation. <coughs> Psychoanalysis itself as a practice effects a form of translation, says Freud, but it's, it's actually more complicated than that, because if it does so, if the practice of psychoanalysis does so, uh, the reason that it does is because the psyche has already been busy translating into a foreign language that's unreadable to the, to the individual subject, him or herself. So, as it were, we're not only moving in a multilingual way in our psyches between languages, uh, <coughs> in, a, in a conventional sense, but also between languages that we can understand and that we can't understand, the unconscious. 
So let's consider some uh, examples of Freud's use of the concept of translation. We can find them straight away in the case histories in Freud and Breuer's studies on hysteria of 1895. Their theory of the hysterical symptom as a form of conversion, as they call it, <coughs> which Freud, Freud defined as the transformation of psychical excitation into chronic physical symptoms, brings hysteria uh, close to a practice of physical bodily translation. Hysteria, in fact, Freud observes, is fundamentally a form of bilingualism and can take that form literally at times. So, <coughs> Breuer's Anna O, for example, uh, at one point uh, begins to express herself by, uh, uh, with the following symptom, that is, that she switches into speaking only in English without realising that she's doing so. Um, and if asked to read in that state, French or Italian, she, uh, uh, quote, she would sight-read an excellent English translation with astonishing rapidity and fluency. <laughs> so, she, so she unconsciously, as it were, translates in, uh, from this polylingual uh, state she's got herself into. And in some sense, I think psychoanalysis itself will mimic that translational facility, converting one language uh, into another. In Freud's uh, own case history, uh, <coughs> the follows of Katarina, which uh, uh, you may recall reads as much like a story as a, as a case history, or perhaps more like a story than a case history. Um, Freud re re relates, apparently verbatim, the dialogue that took place between them 6,000 feet up on the mountaintops uh, in the Austrian Alps. And in his relation, he actually uh, catches the, or he, he keeps the uh, Austrian country dialect uh, of Katerina that she, that she uses, but which uh, no translator, Stretchy or other, uh, has attempted to reproduce in English, so she sounds much more conventional, shall we say. And this is a little dialogue from that <coughs> case history. Fraulein Katerina, says Freud, if you could remember now what was happening in you at that time, when you had your first attack, what you thought about it, it would help you. She says, yes, if I could, but I was so frightened I'd forgotten everything. And Freud puts in brackets, translated into the terminology of our preliminary communication, that is, to the studies in hysteria, this means, quote, the effect itself created a hypnoid state whose products were then cut off from associative connection with the ego consciousness. So this statement, I think, represents a kind of fundamental mode of translation in Freud, um, which is the kind of uh, translation that uh, Roman Jakobsen would call intralingual. And today, after Foucault, we'd uh, <coughs> also talk about it in terms of, of discourse, because Freud's translation is, is certainly between two languages, but he's not producing an equivalent in another ordinary language, but a translation of this dialectical German into a totally different discursive regime. So he translates the girl's colloquial remark into his own terminology, the scientific or the medical language of psychoanalysis, through which psychoanalytic understanding as such is achieved. So her, I was so frightened that I'd forgotten everything, becomes the effect itself created a hypnoid state whose products are then cut off from associative connection with ego consciousness. And it's interesting, I'm quoting there from the new Penguin uh, translation, which can't actually obviate the degree, uh, <coughs> or extreme degree, you might say, of this psychoanalytic uh, transposition, which ideologically, a la Bettelheim, uh, the, the translations are in some sense concerned to, or seeking to deny. What happens in this translation or transposition from one discourse to another, apart from a move to unintelligibility to the ordinary reader, including the girl herself? Her sentence is depersonalized, and her experience moved into the universal structure of mental functioning that psychoanalysis produces as its form of theoretical understanding. 
So I was so frightened is translated into the affect itself created a hypnoid state and so on. And at one level this represents the fundamental form of the talking cure, that is the cure is affected, yes, through the subject's own speech, but that speech is submitted to a form of translation of a language which in more complex cases the patient herself may come to understand, if not actually speak. The particular experience of the individual, in other words, is translated into scientific discourse that enables that experience to be understood as a function of the psyche or the body as it's understood in the realm of medicine. The individual's experience is totally depersonalized, you notice, into a universal theoretical framework, one which, in, uh, to be fair to him, in Freud's case, was being perpetually modified in response to new experiences that he encountered. So it's a very mobile uh, discursive framework that, that he uses. But the question that it raises, I think, is to what extent that psycholytic translation is more than just a translation. To what extent, in other words, does psychoanalysis offer real understanding or explanation as opposed to translation into its own specialised idiom, setting the one above the other? And that's actually a classic question in psychoanalytic literary criticism, uh, <coughs> and one that continually plays back into psychoanalysis itself. To what extent is it nothing but a translation, we might say? And one level, I think that it is the case that it is nothing but a translation, but it's actually a very complicated kind of translation, and I'll try and uh, show how. This uh, transposition of ordinary language into psychoanalytic discourse <coughs> is undoubtedly, I think, one of the most common ways that, that Freud invokes the term translation. He uses that term himself there. And it certainly wouldn't provoke particular interest from a translational point of view from in the realm of translation studies, since it could hardly be uh, claimed to be an original use of the concept. We have the original, that's the girl's words, which are then subsequently translated by Freud into his own uh, language. But much more interesting from a theoretical point of view is the manner in which the, the concept of translation is deployed in the interpretation of dreams. Now, the, <coughs> the word uh, Übersetzung uh, in various formations appears uh, at least uh, 45 times in the interpretation of dreams. Admittedly, it's a long book, uh, but even so, that's, that's quite a, uh, <coughs> a high recurrence. And here again, he uses the concept uh, in, various, uh, in different ways. A minor interest is his use of the term translation to describe the interpretation of symbolism in dreams. Some symbols uh, are so constant in their occurrence and their meaning, he says, that they can be translated easily into specific meanings. And Freud calls these stable translations, which is actually quite a, a, a useful term. Um, <coughs> here he might equally well have a mean interpreted, they're stable interpretations uh, as translated, except that, of course, interpretation sounds modifiable, a discussable matter, whereas translation uh, suggests symbols have a more exact and relatively fixed equivalent from language to language, as in hat for chapeau, uh, for example, or in Freud's case, in his symbol translation, <coughs> hat for male genitals. Such symbol translation, uh, as Freud calls it, is, however, too easy and misses the point. And uh, he's constantly saying, as you know in the interpretation of dreams, that dream interpretation isn't just about um, <coughs> uh, interpreting symbols. Limiting the work, he says, quote, of dream translation to translating symbols uh, rather than uh, and, and abandoning the technique of making use of the dreamer's ideational associations. That's, as it were, the, the key to interpretation of dreams. What, what Freud calls dream translation, which is, a, again, an interesting concept, um, <clears throat> is altogether more complicated. So what, what's involved? 
The first instance will be the translation of unconscious expressions into conscious rational motives or wishes. What makes psychoanalysis more than just a translation is that psychoanalysis is translating the unknown. As Freud puts it in his discussion of Hamlet, very simply, here I've translated into conscious terms what was bound to remain unconscious in Hamlet's mind. Of course, the fact that Hamlet was a real person is another question. Um, <laughs> but we'll set that aside. Um, he, thus, he thus very frequently summarizes an action uh, or a dream by offering its rational meaning as his translation. Uh, and this is, he's constantly doing this. Um, <clears throat> and of course that's relatively uh, easy with the symptom or even the literary text, but it's particularly hard with respect to uh, a dream. As the opening of chapter six of the interpretation of dreams, the dream work, famous chapter, begin, uh, <clears throat> in, in that opening, Freud begins by contrasting his method with previous accounts of the meaning of dreams that in one way or another, of course, uh, miss the point, he says. And the reason they miss the point is because they simply interpret what he calls the manifest dream content. In other words, they simply interpret the dream. Uh, and so that's why they're wrong. Um, and what Freud's innovation, uh, his radical innovation, that, that is a word, uh, makes his work stand out, is that he actually moves interpretation into the realm of translation. Because, he says, the manifest dream content is a translation of something else. Uh, and that, including the relation between them, is the meaning of the dream, not the dream uh, that we remember. So he sets up his model of the relation of the manifest dream content to the latent dream content, or dream thoughts, as he puts them. And the dream work, <coughs> as we know, is the means by which the former are translated into the latter, or transformed into the latter. And this, this relation of transformation between the dream thoughts and the dream content uh, is one, uh, he says, of translation. Dream thoughts, is Freud, and dream content lie before us like two representations of the same content in different languages. Or rather, a particular dream content appears to us as a version of the relevant dream thoughts rendered into a different mode of expression, the characters and syntax of which were meant to learn by comparison of the original with the translation. Here it's the dreams themselves, rather than the analyst, who's uh, engaging in forms of translation, and that's the difference. The dream content is simply a translation of a, into another language of <coughs> dream thoughts rendered into a different mode of expression. <clears throat> However, it isn't simply a question of a normative translation which, uh, from language B uh, to, to the original language A, since language A is unknown. The original language, as he says, is actually unknown, unreadable. And it consists of a different mode of expression whose characters and syntax we have to learn by comparison with the translation. But if we don't have the translation, how can we actually learn the relation between the characters and syntax to the translation? So in a typically Freudian double move, his first claim is that the dream thoughts and contents are simply the representation of the same content in different languages. <clears throat> but then he immediately modifies that to a second claim, which is that the dream content is a version of the dream thoughts rendered, as I said, in different mode of expression, characters and syntax. That is another text that we have to learn by comparison with the, the translation. So the dream thoughts, uh, in other words, are in an unknown language that we have to decipher on the basis of the translation. The situation that Freud describes, <coughs> as he was perhaps aware, though he uh, uh, unexpectedly, uh, remarkably, I think, nowhere mentions it, as far as I've been able to find in all his writings, is uh, it's very similar to that of the Rosetta Stone. 
where the Egyptian, the Demotic, and the Greek texts are placed in parallel uh, with each other. Freud makes, of course, frequent comparison of dream content to Egyptian hieroglyphs. Quote, dream content is embedded, as it were, in a hieroglyphic script whose characters need to be translated one by one into the language of the dream thoughts, he says. But why, why hieroglyphs in particular? First, because they suggest an unknown language that requires decoding and deciphering, as of course was the case with Egyptian hieroglyphs until the 19th century. <coughs> and secondly, because although primarily phonetic, <coughs> which was the mistake why people couldn't uh, decode them, uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs still retain elements of a picture language, which is what people always thought they were. It's a language that, like dreams, shifts between the linguistic and the pictorial in its representations. And at the same time, Freud often moves quickly from hieroglyphs to the idea that dreams are more like a picture puzzle or rebus in which the value of each image needs to be replaced by a word or syllable that indicates its meaning, which seems to imply, in fact, an understanding of the uh, <coughs> nature of hieroglyphics prior to their decoding by Young and Champollion. Now, with hysteria, you could say the pictographic script is in some sense there on the surface, in the symptom, but what's, and what's required is that the analyst reconverts it back into the sim symptom. And so too with dream translation, where the hieroglyphic language of the dream hides the dream thoughts. It's impossible, in fact, to compare the original with the translation on the Rosetta Stone model, which is maybe why he never mentions it, because the original isn't there to be read. It can only be inferred. So psychoanalysis finds the meaning of dreams not in dreams themselves, but in their invisible origins. In dreams, we only have the translation. The patient and the analyst's job is to translate the incomprehensible dream content, which is just a load of nonsense, uh, back into its original, and then to analyze and repeat in reverse the work of translation that's been transformed, which has transformed the first into the second. So uh, dream interpretation, therefore, as uh, Jean Laplanche has suggested, is, is in fact not really so much a question of translation, but of detranslation. Trying to detranslate the dream, which is, as I say, apparently nonsense, back into original that remains hidden. And that's where, of course, the work of interpretation through association must come into play. Why? It's, that it's by breaking the dream content down into its constituent parts, working through the dreamer's associations, that you engage in the laborious work of detranslating the dream content back to its original dream thoughts. And these, when identified, offer comprehensible, distortion-free, rational sentiments uh, as the meaning of the dream. So psychoanalysis becomes a kind of reverse translation, translating the dream back into its original unconscious text, mimicking the dream work, which has carried out that first translation that produced the dream. This, however, isn't uh, <coughs> a proper translation in the way that it normally be thought of, in terms of a move from one language to another, for it's, in a sense, a willfully uh, bad translation. That is, the dream translation is a, is a bad translation, <coughs> willfully bad, because the ego tries to disguise the meaning of the dream thoughts altogether, subjecting them, therefore, to distortion, condensation, displacement, and all the other mechanisms of repression. In other words, it's kind of nightmare translation, the kind of translation you only meet with in bad dreams. So the manifest dream content is a willfully obscured, obscured bad translation, <coughs> a 
maybe Strachey's translation. So that the detranslator not only has to translate the dream back into its original, but actually has to do that according to the procedure of the reversal of the particular mechanisms of replacement, of, of repression, displacement, and, and so forth. And it's that bizarre process of translation that the patient has to turn around in order to achieve psychic health. <coughs> But how easy will that be, given that she has to recover an original that she never knew from a translation that has willfully obscured its relation to the original from quite a demanding task? Freud, however, is unabashed and remains confident because he says once he's isolated the four main mechanisms of the dream work, then the dream does nothing but translate the relevant dream thoughts in accordance with those four conditions. But without a knowledge of those conditions, then the work of detranslation is impossible. So Freud's contribution in that sense is, is, is that theoretical machinery of, the, of the chapter 6, which shows what the conditions of, uh, of, of distortion translation uh, involve. Unlike conventional translation, uh, in detranslation, there's no, interestingly, there's no real hierarchy here between the different texts, because although the original dream, dream thoughts may be original, <coughs> they're only made evident through the process of detranslation in which they're then restated by the analyst in his own transposed language of psychoanalysis. So we never, in fact, get to the original <coughs> as such. We only get to the analyst's uh, rephrasing of the original's meaning. So if psychoanalysis operates on a model of translation and detranslation, it's, you could say it's, it's a translation like uh, no other. And his model of translation uh, in psychoanalysis, as a result, is as idiosyncratic, you might say, as psychoanalysis itself. How useful is that model for other kinds of translation? As interesting as the idea is of translating an original that's uh, unavailable, uh, detranslating an original that's unavailable, um, <clears throat> uh, there are a few areas in which, uh, the, the, as it were, the situation of having the translation but not the original uh, and an original, uh, and a, sorry, a translation that uh, that has willfully distorted, <coughs> um, uh, and requires a sort of interpretive detective work to get back to the original. Uh, the, there are a few situations where, or parallel situations where where that occurs. So that for for that uh, model to be deployed elsewhere, and that's uh, no doubt I think why Freud, however radical as a translation theorist hasn't made a major impact on regular translation theory as such. But I think as a theoretical paradigm, uh, it remains actually rather suggestive. For example, um, it offers a possible way of reading invisibility, if you like, of unknown things. Uh, for example, in my field of the postcolonial, the subaltern, uh, <coughs> the, 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 the people whose public representations by, by the controlling classes and discourses distort their fundamental being where the invisibility or repression of subalterns, for example, in official discourses and documents, then require something <coughs> like a detranslation exercise to make them visible in their own terms. Or it could be used, I think, too, in the context of ideology, which, of course, is also a kind of willfully bad translation, in some sense, uh, of uh, an original. But at this point, I want to move on to the last part of my talk to look at the way that, that Freud describes the process of psychic life itself as a form of translation and how he develops that into sublimation, which amounts, uh, I want to argue, to a kind of cultural translation. 
In many ways, as I've suggested, Freud uh, anticipates this idea, uh, cultural translation, <coughs> which would be later um, uh, utilized or invented, I suppose, by anthropologists in the first instance, uh, <coughs> then just as they abandoned, uh, <coughs> taken over by cultural theorists, and then actually uh, most recently taken up uh, by translation theories. Uh, though they all have very different implications, as I'll try to show from uh, what Freud uh, develops. Though he doesn't use the term itself, um, his focus on issues of translation and culture has the effect of putting them again and again uh, together. Now, in this uh, uh, domain, he summarizes his general thesis in his uh, 1932 letter to Albert Einstein, Why War, uh, in the following way. This is Freud. Since time immemorial, mankind has been moving through a process of cultural evolution. I know that there are those who prefer the term civilization. It's to this process that we owe the best that we have become, and a great deal of that which causes us suffering. The ambivalent cultural evolution, uh, in Freud's terms, that mankind has been moving through is recapitulated in the individual life of the human being, where the cultural suppression of the instincts affects the translation of the individual from the child to the adult. Cultural translation in Freud is a result of the denial, suppression, or renunciation uh, of the instincts. And <coughs> what, he's, what he's arguing is that it's good for civilization or culture, but it's not so hot for the individual. Though it wasn't to be fully developed until the 1930s, we find uh, interesting anticipation of this idea of translation as renunciation and transformation quite early on in Freud. So in a letter of December 1896 to his great friend and confidant, Wilhelm Fliess, Freud sketches out an early idea of the stages of psychic life as what he calls a structure of successive transcripts. He divides psychic life into four epochs and describes the transition between these, the successive epochs, uh, <coughs> one to four, as moments of translation. He uses that term. Neurosis, he argues, results from a failure of translation leaving an anachronism, or as he puts it in the anthropological uh, language of E.B. Tyler, untranslated survivals of phenomena from early periods. For its schema runs as follows, I quote, successive registrations, it's quite technical, successive registrations represent the psychical achievement of successive epochs of life. At the boundary between two such epochs, a translation of the psychical material must take place. So, so we're, our lives are in four epochs, and at each boundary or frontier, a translation takes place. So he's sketching out a chronology of, of different epochs of the psyche in which the subject moves from one stage to another across a boundary or frontier that lies between them. And the term translation is used, in a sense, both metaphorically and literally to describe those transitional uh, mo movements across these mental frontiers. It involves a carrying across from one stage to another, in the course of which the components of the libido are themselves transformed and reordered, as he puts it, so that the excitatory process or sexual energy is drained off, at which point a successful translation has taken place. So translation <coughs> is about uh, draining off sexual energy uh, and deflecting it into other realms. The peculiarities of the psychoneuroses, on the other hand, are explained by, quote, by supposing that this translation has not taken place in the case of some of the material which has certain consequences. 
And in this case, <coughs> where what he calls a memory trace from an earlier phase hasn't been translated, uh, uh, he, as he puts it, I quote, an anachronism persists. These are the survivals. In a particular province, Fueros, this is uh, a Spanish term meaning um, the fundamental feudal law guaranteeing traditional privileges. Fueros are still in force. We're in the presence of survivals. Neurosis in this account therefore results from what Freud describes as a, quote, a failure of translation. This is what is known clinically as repression. The motive for it is always a release of unpleasure, unbehagen, which would be generated by a translation. It's as though this unpleasure provokes a disturbance of thought which doesn't <coughs> the work of translation. So repression, he says here, amounts to a failure of translation where the psyche rejects the release of unpleasure that the translational process regenerates. This is, um, slight, I mean, we might expect the opposite, in fact, that uh, <coughs> uh, translation in some sense uh, uh, produces uh, uh, repression. Uh, and um, in fact, the word that he uses or uh, is translated, is just, um, <coughs> uh, translated as repression, uh, is not the usual term that's uh, used by Freud of, as for repression, verdringung, um, uh, but rather versagung, which actually means denial or refusal. It doesn't really mean, I mean, it sort of means repression, but it means refusal uh, first. Um, repression is, if you like, moving it into uh, a kind of Freudian uh, framework. This repression is a refusal, therefore, that rejects and forestalls the working through that would allow the work of translation across successive phases of the psyche to produce the normative pattern that enables psychic health, even though it generates unpleasure. So, so basically, the translation uh, uh, offers unpleasure, uh, <coughs> and the psyche, uh, as it were, the potentially neurotic psyche, refuses to go through this unpleasurable experience and uh, therefore doesn't transform its, uh, its psychic material, if you like, which then uh, lives on as a survival uh, from the past. So translation in this schema produces psychic health, failure of translation, neurosis. And neurosis will take the form of a denial of a memory trace which hasn't yet been translated, but which then gets translated otherwise through conversion into hysterical symptoms. This idea, uh, early idea of the psychic life as the work of a series of successful translations that generate unpleasure occurs in a different form in Civilization and its Discontents in 1931. Except that, that here the etiology of such a process, though still repressing or translating sexuality, is also ascribed to the effects directly of culture. And Freud's schema is now uh, much more dialectical. Uh, <coughs> it goes like this, uh, this is the argument of the book. Culture represses sexuality, while repressed sexuality is sublimated into cultural production, which then, of course, represses more sexuality. There's thus a sense that civilization and all its achievements, <coughs> such as art and technology, arise, uh, you could say, from uh, what's both lost and gained in, in translation. But the word that Freud uses in this later text uh, to, to describe the movement through successive stages of the repression of sexual drives in the individual psyche from infant to adult, is no longer translation, but sublimation. No longer ubersetzung, but sublimierung. 
meaning of these two words is strikingly close because Ubersetzung means to place or set above, whereas Sublimierung, sublimation, means an elevation to a higher state or plane of existence, transmutation into something higher, purer, sublime. So sublimation, sublimation, is therefore the process of putting or moving something above, like translation, transposing it, and indeed translating it in the sense now reserved only for saints, such as Elijah, who are translated straight from earth to heaven. If we look back to the fleece letter, uh, we can see that there Freud is using Ubersetzung in the sense uh, later reserved, in fact, in, in psychoanalysis for sublimation whose meaning is defined as the refining, in this is in psychoanalytic terms, the refining of instinctual energy, especially that of the sexual impulse, and its manifestation in ways that are more socially acceptable. That's the OED definition of psychoanalytic sublimation. The two remain provocatively close. The transmutation of sublimation, like translation, pushes the instincts onto a higher plane, though by repressing them in the process, it produces unpleasure and, crucially, leaves a malaise, or discontent, in its wake. So much for translation. But what about culture? True to his preference for idiomatic translations, Freud was apparently very happy with the iconic title of the English translation of his book, Civilization and Its Discontents. He personally approved the, that translation. But it's significant that his original title was actually Das Unbehagen in der Kultur which translates as uh, the uneasiness or malaise or literally unpleasure in, in culture. The interesting question here is why the German Kultur was translated as civilization, not as culture. Civilization at one level would probably be the most obvious uh, word to use in English in the 19th or first half of the 20th century, as for example in Buckle's History of Civilization in England, a work which in certain respects provides a precursor to Freud's. Whereas today, so, so civilization was, was the, the word that people felt uh, more, more happy with, if you like, and more familiar with. But today, civilization isn't really a word that we use so unselfconsciously in English, um, given the legacy, particularly of the colonial civilizing mission, according to which civilization was what distinguished European from non-European cultures in the colonial hierarchy. So today, we might feel actually much more comfortable with the word culture, especially since in English, the broader anthropological meaning of culture as were the totality of social production, has supervened upon its alternate meaning of, uh, of the arts, high refined culture. As an OED entry from the Financial Times <coughs> 2001 puts it, quote, in 15 years, culture has moved from the most sublime performances of opera, dance, and classical music to street parties, social inclusion, and fun. As um, the FT uh, quotation might indicate, a literal translation, though, of Freud's title, uneasiness in culture uh, might be somewhat perplexing today because why should we be uneasy in our culture of fun Champions League, Jubilee celebrations and the like um, it would be baffling but in the 1920s and 30s of course uh, there were many tracts, poems and books uh, written about the widespread sense that western culture or civilization become unbearable and unlivable think T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland or think D.H. Lawrence and today this lives on, uh, perhaps, in the lugubrious nostalgia of New Age thinking, <coughs> which, of course, is a product of, of uh, that earlier period. Those two, the, uh, Lawrence and the New Ages, would agree with Freud's description of the common view in 1931 
that, quote, much of the blame for our misery lies with what we call our culture or civilization, and that we should be far happier if we were to abandon it and revert to primitive conditions. <coughs> that's basically the thesis of D.H. Lawrence, actually. That's, his, that's what his books are all about. <coughs> But the particular historical uh, discontent with civilization or hostility to culture in the 1920s and 30s, which of course was largely a result of the, of the, of the, uh, the Great War and the imperialist nationalism, or culture of nationalism that had produced it, is not the only reason um, why today that discontent <coughs> with culture uh, has, has sort of anachronistic problems. Because in Freud's day, the word culture in English or German uh, had an aura that uh, it's largely lost, I think. Because in the 1920s and 30s in English, <coughs> um, sorry, uh, in the 1920s or 30s, the common view was that, in fact, there were two rival European cultures or civilizations, often characterized as civilization, which was broadly English or French, of course, uh, versus the German, Kultur. And this distinction was the product of the ideology of the First World War, and it continued right up to uh, the Nazi era. So the word kultur even became an English word, and you can find it in the OED, where its meaning is given as, quote, civilization as conceived by the Germans, especially used in a derogatory sense during the 1914-18 and 1939-45 wars, as involving notions of racial and cultural arrogance, militarism, and imperialism. <coughs> 1915, uh, the Times opined, kultur, in fact, has become the exact opposite of culture. To the British, Kultur represented, therefore, a brute Prussian militarism that uh, uh, they felt lacked all ethics. It was basically uh, unethical or ungentlemanly. Quote, it's a peculiar essence of German Kultur, which is the German religion, that it's Germany's moral duty to break every tie, every restriction that bind man to fellow men if she thinks it will pay, said Rudyard Kipling. German treatments of prisoners and civilians in the Great War, or the practice of taking revenge against entire cities, such as the destruction of the Belgian city of Louvain in 1914, meant that John Buchan, in his history of the Great War, which was written during the Great War, um, was already characterizing G uh, German Kultur as responsible for what he calls a Holocaust. For this reason, setting aside the question of whether the English word culture at that time could have sustained them, the uh, meaning of Freud's title, whether it had developed enough uh, in English at that time. The resonances of Kultur in English uh, uh, as culture, however foreign, of course, from Freud's Austrian-German, meant that uh, the better equivalent was the more anglicized civilization. It couldn't have used uh, the word culture, uh, that's what I'm basically saying, in 1931 in the English translation. Although the word civilization does actually exist in German, Freud never uses it in his text, and um, <coughs> uh, as I've already mentioned, in the Einstein letter, he actually acknowledges the existence, but says he doesn't uh, want to use it. Uh, he wants to use culture. But given our contemporary reservations about culture and the transmutation of the meanings of the word culture in English, what if today we were to rethink Freud's text in terms of it being about culture rather than civilization? For its description of culture first comes in part two, devoted to questions of human happiness. The word, he writes, <coughs> designates the sum total of the achievements and institutions that distinguish our life from those of our animal ancestors and serve the dual purpose of protecting human beings against nature and regulating their mutual relations. The progress of civilization, Freud suggests, or culture, produces all that's finest in human existence. 
but the sublimation of the drives which it demands is achieved at some personal cost. He then proposes a parallel between the process of culture or civilization and the libidinal development of the individual, both of which involve the sublimation of the drives, collectively or individually. Culture is a process of translation, we could say, for the individual, where each one of us learns to control and or displace their erotic and aggressive drives. Sublimation of the drives, Freud's writes, is a particularly striking feature of cultural development which makes it possible for the higher mental activities, scientific, artistic, ideological, to play such a significant role in civilized life. Sublimation is a fate civilization or culture imposes on the drives. While it's at the same time, of course, sublimation that produces civilization. And this leads to the darker insight of the book that culture is built up on renunciation and non-satisfaction of the sexual drives through repression. One effect of culture's restrictions <coughs> of the sexual life is to produce what uh, Freud calls, in the English translation, cultural frustration. So, as it were, a successful translation <coughs> uh, produces not only unpleasure, unbehagen, but also uh, cultural frustration. Cultural frustration is how Kulterfassagung is generally uh, translated, which is Freud's original term. But Versager in German means uh, generally refusal or failure. And here we return to the Versagung of translation in the Fleece letter, where, which was translated as repression. So if we were using that translation, it would be called cultural repression, which uh, doesn't actually make any sense. Uh, uh, whereby the subject refuses the translation of the drive or memory trace because of the unpleasure, unbehagen, discontent uh, that it provokes. The unpleasurable sublimation or translation that, trans that culture requires, therefore, paradoxically, then produces cultural denial or refusal. Just as translation could fail in the fleece letter if its unpleasure, unbehagen, provoked its repression or refusal. So the uneasiness of culture that Freud describes in 1931 is, as I said, paradoxically the result of successful cultural translation. So what does that theory mean for translation? For Freud, at one level, culture involves a process of sublimation that produces psychic translation. For the individual society, culture is nothing less than a process of repression that produces translation through its mechanisms of sublimation. Translation, for its part, is thus nothing less than a process of sublimation in which our original sexual drives <coughs> are renounced. What's distinctive about that process as cultural translation is that in Freud, the translated elements of sexuality in particular never disappear, never disappear even in the translated person, because they keep reappearing, retranslated, as we know, in dreams, and for those whose translations haven't been successful as the symptoms of neurosis. So it's not a question of translation moving a text from language A to language B and then leaving language A behind, uh, but rather moving language A to B by making language A unconscious, repressed, but still haunting uh, the second language as its shadow and liable to reappear in disguised form at any moment. Cultural translation in Freud therefore isn't a process where, whereby the former elements are left behind 
<coughs> entirely, but one in which the new text always remains doubled and haunted, its translations in some sense perpetually remaking themselves, the translated text perpetually seeking to in revert to its original like a ball held under water. The different languages, as in the dream, remain perpetually present. In some sense, therefore, once again, we live in two or more languages at once. And this multilingualism, or bilingualism, which is a word, <coughs> in which, as it were, like an O, we read one language but translate it simultaneously into another, can illuminate how in this mode the general sense of loss in translation modifies its gain. For while in cultural terms much is gained in the, in the individual, <coughs> this gain produces at the same time a constant sense of <coughs> discontent, unease, unpleasure, malaise, cultural frustration or cultural refusal, or we might say today cultural dislocation. <coughs> Uh, nostalgia for a past that's been suppressed and Freud suggests at the end of the book even guilt and the guilt that translation uh, produces helps perhaps to illuminate why he was so fond of quoting that famous witticism about the unavoidable cost of translation traditore, traditore translator, traitor well initially Freud uh, in civilization its discontents, or before then he, he draws on the older terms of sexuality, sublimation and repression. Increasingly in that book he moves towards a dialectical account of the translational relation being one of uh, not as it were full, full sublimation but of perpetual struggle or ambivalence. And the malaise of contemporary cultural civilization in Freud's day comes from too successful a history of sublimation <coughs> cultural translation. The more successful it is at one level, the more ambivalent individuals feel about it, and the more then they're inclined to refuse it or reject it. <coughs> so culture at some level, in, in a sort of rather, as in the uh, racial theorist <coughs> uh, Gobineau, culture in some theory, the, the logical implication of, of Freud's theory is that actually culture has some kind of doom built into it, because the more successful it is, the more, uh, as a culture, the more the individuals of that culture will actually uh, reject it. <coughs> the development of culture produces an increasing tension or dissensus between the community, therefore, and the individual. For Freud, cultural translation and sublimation is something about which, at best, we can only feel ambivalent. Its community gains are the losses of its individual members. And it's at this point that my lecture finally accords, perhaps, with the auspices of its series title, Sovereignty and Identity, part of the Jean Monnet, Europe Beyond Governance. <coughs> what I said earlier about there being little discontent with our culture or civilization today wasn't quite right, because if, actually if we think at a European level, there's plenty of it. This actually become, uh, <coughs> uh, well, quietly I've been uh, <coughs> trying to suggest that civilization in its discontents can also be read as, in some sense, nothing less than a proleptic allegory of the course of the European Union, where the civil progress of the European Union simultaneously produces an increasing degree of cultural, to say nothing of economic, uh, unpleasure and discontent in its member states and their population, um, together with a global uneasiness and disquiet, leading, perhaps, to ultimate refusal. Does civilization and its discontents offer an answer to the question of how to resolve the tensions of that difficult ambivalence that the EU is producing? I'm afraid that Freud pointedly concludes his text by altogether refusing to offer either consolation or solution. Thank you.
just on that last point, he doesn't. He also doesn't say it would be better to go back to the primal horde, which you suggested might have been a, an alternative route that Lawrence. For that's absolutely might. right. Yes, I mean he thinks that's uh, yeah ridiculous. So he's always sort of <laughs> it's better than that, but it's yeah. still not going to be yeah. great, is it? Well, actually, Freud is one of the people who, in some sense, is, is least discontent with his culture. <laughs> he seems very positive about his culture, apart from, of course, what was happening around him. Great. Okay. Yeah. Well, we have some time. I'm sure lots of people want to ask questions and stuff. Just a short sort of reflection on being German. I just feel, you know, it's helpful to sort of say that actually not all culture is linked to the Holocaust in Germany, and we don't think uh, about culture in those terms. In fact. In Germany, I think most people would link term civilization much closer to the Nazi Holocaust than fascism, mm. because naturally, Germany's, Germans link the idea of culture to the idea of education very, very deeply, right. very closely. So, a highly educated person in Germany would be a highly cultural person. Right. And that's sort of a, whereas the kind of the flag waving that we've seen in the UK in the last few days is what we link with civilization, with empire, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so. Uh, so, so it, it really. So, I'm, I'm quite surprised about this reversal in your, in, in, in your, and I'd be interested, you know, if you could mm. say a few words about this, because it's exactly the opposite from how Germans mm. look at it. Um, so, yeah, just as, as that's a interesting. This idea of detranslation, um, I, I thought was an interesting one. Sort of in the absence of sort of knowing the, the sort of the dream thoughts, you know, sort of, sort of speculative translating back, if I understand this correctly. Uh, could you just elaborate on how you would distinguish there between this notion of detranslation and this idea of uh, sort of um, uh, deconstruction? Because in a way, for me, they seem indistinguishable within that context. Mm. Thanks. Um, well, it's very interesting. I mean, of course, what it me what what you're pointing to in relation to <coughs> what you said at the beginning is exactly how, uh, as it were, people see each other. So the very thing that in Germany, as it were, uh, means culture in a totally positive sense is, uh, comes in English to characterize everything that they dislike about German militarism. Um, but of course that's not, I mean you're quite right, and that's why Freud of course can use it so freely, uh, uh, because it, to, to Freud it certainly doesn't mean that at all. Uh, and indeed, as I suggested, Freud is, I mean he's, he's extraordinarily positive about cultural uh, Achievements, yes, of course, yes, no, no, of course. And civilization, of course, uh, which must be a French word imported into German, of course, would then stand for, uh, as it were, other cultural, uh, <coughs> other cultural identities. Uh, and in that context, it's worth thinking that uh, imperialism in English was first used as, as a very derogatory term to describe French culture, because the French were the imperialists, because uh, uh, the British weren't uh, <coughs> In fact, it was the time of anti-imperialism in, in Britain in the mid-19th century. Um, so, so, so there's a sort of constant uh, sort of, um, uh, it's sort of like a children's game, you know, sort of moving from one part to the other where, where people appropriate the term and then reverse it, if you, if you like. Um, so that's, that's very interesting, but that, that is nevertheless the case why they couldn't translate culture <laughs> as culture. Um, you say, say a word on the, this uh, relation, if any, between mm. this uh, translation 
detranslation and a deconstruction. Mm, mm. Um, obviously, uh, they're provocatively close, detranslation and deconstruction. Um, uh, and I scrupulously avoided kind of <laughs> going down that route because I've never got back again. Um, uh, but I think they are they are different in the sense. I mean, have a close, you might say. Um, they 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 are. There's a, there's a difference in the sense that uh, I mean, the deconstruction of a text, we could say, um, takes it apart, but. Sh sh so as to show uh, the operation of marginalized elements and how those excluded but, but marginalized elements actually govern the logic of the text, broadly speaking. Um, that's not quite what detranslation does because the, the difference there is that in the case of detranslation, as I su suggested, we're not talking about marginalized elements, we're talking about something that isn't there at all. Uh, this, I mean, Freud's hypothesis that, as it were, there is this thing, the dream thought, uh, as well as the dream content. And therefore, as well, the mechanism of detranslating uh, could never be a purely textual one, uh, arguably, uh, because in order to get back to this lost original, you have to have the subject there who's going to produce the associations, and you have to work through in this laborious way to produce what is in fact then as I was suggesting um, <coughs> as it were a statement of the dream thoughts which are in fact Freud's summary of what the dream means so they as it were the two come together we, we never so to speak experience the dream thoughts in their own language uh, if they if they have one or maybe that's like Comte you might argue but okay, uh, yeah. I'm very very taken very interested in the drawing the line between Übersetzen uh, and Sublimieren. Mm -hmm. um, particularly because um, as much as they bring together, I wonder if there might not, might not also be some kind of double logic implicit here. Mm. Uh, they have a, a, and I just, this is really a, a very open question, I'm not quite sure how to answer it. Um, whether there's not a different relation to what is below in both of them. The one you talked about over mm -hmm. and above. Mm -hmm. I think it struck mm -hmm. me, you know, um, how does sublimieren relate to what's below and how does Übersetzen relate to what's below? And you know, whether Übersetzen has, has limited the mm -hmm. movement of sublimieren, mm -hmm. sublimieren mm -hmm. uh, whereas mm -hmm. it, it's expanded in some ways. It's, it seems to be that there might be, a, is there a different difference there, do you think? Uh, yes, that's, I mean, um, I mean, at one level, I was so excited to bring them together. I wanted to <laughs> crush them together. Sub and Uber, right? <laughs> but, but you're right, and it, uh, I mean, there, uh, uh, there is that. I mean, there is a, a difference. For example, that, that um, when he's talking about translation in the fleece letter, he talks about the translation of of the. Uh, and so forth, as, as they're kind of reordering and recombination uh, as if it was going from one language to another. So the emphasis is not on what he would later call sublimation, which, he does, which is a term he doesn't use there. And so sublimation, yes, you're right, is a, is a development of his theory because actually he's, as were, the, the, everything's being reorganized into something else. And in that sense, um, what's 
paradoxical about sublimation is that, of course, it is, the sub is actually up. <laughs> sounds as though it's down. <laughs> so it's really uberlimation, as it were. Super. Yes, exactly. Um, so, yes, I think you're right that, that, that they're not absolutely yeah. consonant and that it does represent a development of, of Freud's theory. But what I was just trying to show is that, in a way, it was a development from translation. Uh, it, it, it occupies exactly the same place, if you like, in the scheme as, as translation formally did. Do, 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 is any of that in the presumably Latin translation of the, 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 the term that we have in English standardly? Does, does any of this movement survive in that word, translation? Is, um, well, no, because that's, that's the reason why translation in German is different from translation in English because English is a horizontal movement right. whereas German is putting places in the one but When did translation start being used in English for what we now call translation? <laughs> because I've got a book by Spinoza which wasn't translated by anybody, it was done into English. Yeah. yeah. What a brilliant expression that is. <laughs> yeah, or... Um, uh, Englished is another right. right. <laughs> so in the Renaissance, books are Englished, right. which is much better translation. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I would say uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, the, the term translation, meaning translation, does exist uh, in earlier times. It just wasn't wasn't so so current. Um, uh, Certainly, 18th century. I would say that's when it that's when it becomes dominant. Yeah. 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 Yes. Um, yes. I would like to come back to the idea of uh, interpretation as a translation, or rather a detranslation, because listening to listening to you, I was wondering if you did gave um, enough importance to the patient, because actually, if I am not mistaken. The idea of Freud is that the patient does know, he does not know that he knows, but he knows, hence the idea of free association. And so, uh, in my view, it is what uh, makes translation in analysis so specific and so unique, is that the analyst cannot work without the patient. And so I was wondering if really we could say that the original is not available. <coughs> Sorry, the the, when you said when yeah, about the dream, the original is not available. Actually, it is available through the patient. It, it does not. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. It, well, it's it uh, it's made available. Yes, through through the analysis. Uh, but um, even so, when it becomes available, uh, it's not the original. It's 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 it, it, it's summed up as the meaning of the dream. In fact. He doesn't really distinguish, although we'd have to look in detail. But he doesn't distinguish between typically this, his his uh, as it were account of the meaning of the dream as wish fulfillment, for example, from um, what the dream thoughts are. Those are the dream thoughts, um, and uh, so whether that the question is whether that really is the original, uh, whether as it were whether the original is is a is coherently meaningful in, in that way in a, as, as rational and, and, and so forth. Um, uh, I'm sure I didn't give enough attention to the patient because I'm not an, an analyst, but um, uh, I, I did try to say that, that uh, uh, 
what what's different uh, about as well, well there are two processes going on should we say that, that at one level uh, the analyst is translating uh, uh, things that the patient does or, or says um, and that Freud talks about that as uh, explicitly as <coughs> in terms of translation which translated means that and it's the analyst who, who in that sense <coughs> knows for let's say a parapraxis or something like that um, on the other hand, uh, what, what uh, he also says is that, of course, it's the patient who's really doing the translation, but not knowing it. So there are two kinds of translation going on, or two agents of translation, you might say. But uh, does the, as yeah. the correctness of his own translation stand in need of any support from the patient? I mean, you might say, but what if the patient never came to say anything about it, have no relation to the translation, that would seem to me inconceivable. There'd have to be some expression of acknowledgement well, of it as the correct one. Well, of course, I mean, you know, that's another area of resistance and um, <coughs> uh, no means yes and all this. Um, so that, that, that's, that, that's where, if you like, I mean, a, a, a more interesting way of looking at that would be where the patient and the analyst differ over the translation, you could say. So Dora, as it were, her translation is different from Freud's, let's say. Uh, they disagree. So that's, the, and in a sense, it's perhaps not surprising. Oh, it's, it's perhaps surprising that that doesn't happen more often. That there's a disagreement about the translation between, between the two translators. Right. Okay, I've got another question here. Um, thank you very much. I think the, um, I want to say something about the, um, <coughs> the model of um, of interpretation as the, the translation of an original that isn't available, and you you speculated on whether that model could be used as a model. But I think it's possible that Freud thought that he that there was a model for that already, and that it was Kant's epistemology. And I think, mm -hmm. if I if I recall correctly, that he that he mentions Kant in the either in the essay a note on the unconscious or the essay on the unconscious, mm -hmm. and he gives a quite bolderized view of Is Kant. That the idea of something that's beyond experience yeah. being yeah. given. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, just as the thing in itself is not mm -hmm. knowable as it mm -hmm. is in itself, it's only mm -hmm. knowable as it is for us. So the unconscious is not knowable mm -hmm. as it is in itself, in its, you know as unconscious, it's only knowable insofar as it becomes conscious. Um, and if it's right that he, that he holds uh, Kant up as, as a model here, it's interesting because, it's interesting because he, also, he also seems to offer a criticism of the kind of pre-Kantian empiricism that denies that there could be such a thing as an unconscious. So I think if he hasn't got John Locke in mind there, it sounds you know, now we can we can say that the, the philosophers who he talks of but doesn't mention mm. deny the possibility that there could be such a thing as an unconscious because to think is to be conscious of something. That's straightforwardly Locke's position mm. in the essay concerning human understanding. Mm. So he seems to instead have have Kant as as a model. Mm. But it, it's so but it's interesting because he's then given us a very bad translation of Kant, as it were. Like his model is already a bad translation of Kant because it's a, it was a translation from an epistemological problem into a into a hermeneutic practice. Um, 
it's not the case that the that the phenomena is a translation of the um, thing in itself. You know, that's just not the, that's not the way to understand Kant. Mm. Kant's, mm. you know, it's something much more interesting going on in Kant. But but the, but then again, but surely the connection is there. Mm, that's very interesting. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're right. Uh, but <coughs> at some level, Freud kind of flagrantly disregards Kant yeah. because. I mean, what he's claiming in the interpretation of dreams, in a way, is that he does know the thing in itself, or that he can find it. Well, he doesn't know it <laughs> yeah. as it is in itself. Though. Well, no, well, that's that's, that's, that's yes, that's, that's the, the yes. It's not that it yes. is inaccessible. It's just inaccessible as it is in itself. As it is it's itself. accessible via. Yes, that's that's an interesting distinction. Yeah. It's it's not accessible as it is in itself. But it's accessible in its meaning. Yeah. And that's and what that that's, be a what, way of that's what you're saying too. Yeah. Yes. That's why it's different from yeah. the previous so called, you know, the problem of epistemology, which is that we can't know reality as it is in itself separate from our knowing of it. Mm. Therefore we've lead to led to all sorts of sceptical positions. Mm. Uh, and Kant shows, well that you know, that, that's mm. uh, that's not an issue anymore right, in, after after Kant's epistemology. But also there's the question of the translation from philosophy into psychoanalytic discourse, which is a, it's a, it's a, something that Freud is constantly disavowing. Yes, yes, absolutely. And <coughs> when, when philosophy, as it were, pops up, as in <coughs> um, Beyond the Pleasure Principle or something, he, he, he typically jumps away from it, however mm. uh, much he, he increasingly mimics it. Mm. In, in fact, it's almost like the uncanny for him. Mm. That's a very interesting suggestion. Thank you. Mm. Any more? Yes, sir. Who was Ernest Jones' classic three modern biographical poems I looked at? I come across a, um, an abridged version of the one by Penguin Books by the late American critic Brown Trilling. Uh, Ernest Jones wrote about Freud. Did he speak German and I was able to read the German literal wrote from Ernest Jones? Do you know that, Jones? Yeah, Jen, Jones, Jones could read German as far as I'm aware. Yes. Yes, because, uh, because it's Jones who actually produces uh, a comment. He's one of the few people who actually makes commentary on Freud's own translations. Um, so. Uh, he describes Freud's translating uh, system, shall we say, as, as the following. This is Jones. He says, Freud would uh, read a paragraph and he would close the book <laughs> and then he would rephrase it as he thought a German might have put it if they were <laughs> writing in, in German. So, so uh, according to Jones, um, I mean, Freud was extremely free tra translator uh, and didn't actually follow the text itself, though, though <coughs> in some cases that can't have been true. But, but uh, the spirit of that, I think, uh, expresses what, what Freud's translation practice was, uh, was like. OK, well, I think we can uh, happily draw this to a close at this point. And uh, it was absolutely delightful. Thanks for bringing you up at the end. You didn't read that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so... It fits, it fits so nicely. <laughs> <laughs> OK, thank you. Probably